Let me uh, apologize to our cameramen. You don't need to adjust your filters. I'm just red. I'd love to tell you it's the Shekinah glory of God, but it's actually upward soccer on a Saturday. We had a great, great time yesterday. Um, let me encourage you, speaking of that, to, to really pray uh, maybe every Saturday as you wake up to think about and other times during the week to pray about our ministry at Upward. It's not just about providing a good environment for kids to enjoy sports. It's about reaching families that are unchurched and, and who need Christ. So I invite you to pray about that. And, and speaking of prayer, next Sunday evening um, we will have our monthly prayer service and our focus next Sunday evening is praying for specific individual needs of the body and each week you have uh, in your bulletin a tab and it has a place on there where you can write down any prayer needs next week um, we're going to ask you to let us know of a specific need that you have and then if you'd be willing to come that night not only so we can pray for your need but so we can actually pray over you we're going to ask you if you'd be willing to come that night to let us know so that we can be prepared for that so just encourage you to be thinking about that um, as we come to that time of prayer next Sunday night. Turn with me this morning. Pastor Jason mentioned we're starting a series in the book of Galatians. If you're not quite familiar with the word, if you'll go to the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, and then Galatians, not too far back in the New Testament. As you're turning there, let me, let me circle back to, uh, to last Sunday, to Easter Sunday. I don't know when I've had more response, calls and texts and emails and, and face-to-face visits I don't know when I've had more response from a message. I just want to remind us all that the main point of the message was this. It's how we live. It's how we live, not what we say that is evidence of our faith. You remember Jesus' words, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? It's not about what we say. And, and Jesus asked that question because it, it makes no sense to say that he's Lord of life if you're not obeying him and if you're living your own way. I've had several conversations this week uh, about salvation. And I want to tell you, in case uh, you want to have a conversation like that, you want to talk about that, I think I'm going to start saying uh, anytime I'm engaging one of those conversations, hey, before you begin telling me your story, um, let me say this. Please understand your story is not about when you prayed to receive Jesus. It's not your story. Praying a prayer to confess your sin and surrender to the Lordship of Christ is, is the first letter of the first sentence of the first paragraph of the first chapter of your entire life. It's just the starting point. Uh, a prayer for salvation is not the end point. Now, I hope that doesn't sound um, dismissive or insensitive, but praying a prayer is not the issue in regard to salvation. Words do not matter if they're not backed up by actions. That's what Jesus was saying. And, and you see, when you look at Scripture, Jesus had little regard for words. We saw last week in Matthew 7 and also over in Luke 6 that calling him Lord is meaningless. The words mean nothing if they're not backed up by a life of surrender and obedience. And I thought about it this week, and I thought maybe last week I should have mentioned one of the synonyms we use to talk about salvation, and that would be the word conversion. Salvation is a conversion. Maybe that makes it more clear because a, a conversion clearly indicates a change or a transformation. It's to move from, from one state of being to another. It's a, a change in function when there's a conversion. 
And when a person truly surrenders to Christ, when he's converted, he no longer pursues a sinful life, but he pursues a life of righteousness. When a person is converted, when a person is transformed, the function is no longer to live for self, but to live for Christ. So praying a prayer where you ask for forgiveness and you receive Christ's sacrifice on your behalf and you commit to following him as Lord is a good place to begin your walk as a disciple, to begin your walk as a true Christ follower, but that prayer in and of itself does not change you. Those words have no uh, special power. Prayer is an expression of faith. You're expressing your faith that God can and God will save you. It's an expression of faith, but that expression of faith is demonstrated by our works, by how life matters. I think often of the charge uh, of Isaiah to the, the people of God in Isaiah 29 when God is not pleased with them because they're just speaking words, they're not being obedient to him. And Isaiah said, the Lord says, these people come near to me with their mouth, they honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Now you need to understand in scripture the heart represents the intellect or the, the center of a person's being, the, the will, what's inside a person. So what he's saying is, hey, look, they're making a great show outwardly, but their will and their desire is not with me. Their hearts are not turned toward me. So if we're going to have a conversation about faith experience, let's talk about the trajectory of, of life. What's it look like since that point of, of praying a prayer? Let's talk about the level of obedience. Not that we're perfect, but that our desire, our heart, our will, the center of our being wants to obey. Let's talk about what it means to do the will of the Father. That, that's what Jesus talked about, it's doing the will of the Father. This morning we're in Galatians. We'll be here about uh, eight to ten weeks. This will take us into the beginning of the summer. Let me give you a little background on the book of Galatians. Of the 13 letters Paul wrote to the churches... 13 of the 27 New Testament books written by Paul, Letters to Churches, this is the only one that is not written to one city. Galatia was not a city. Galatia was a, a region in Asia Minor in the area, if you looked at a map today, it'd be the same area um, that we now call Turkey. It's modern-day Turkey. And it's probably, Galatians is probably written to some cities in the southern part of Galatia. Paul had been there on his first missionary journey. He had planted churches in the city in Antioch, Iconium, Lystra, and, and Derbe. Now, why is Paul writing? That's important to know before we dive in. Paul is writing because some Judaizers had come and refuted the gospel that Paul had preached, and they were leading the Galatians to embrace a false gospel. Now, you ask the question, what is a Judaizer? A Judaizer was one who lived according to the Jewish customs. They were a group of people, and specifically a group of false teachers, who couldn't comprehend the idea that salvation was freely offered to anyone who believes. And the reason was the forgiveness of sin from such a holy God could not possibly happen without the sinner doing something. In other words, they felt like the payment of Christ was not enough. There had to be some form of payment from us or from the sinner as well. So they believed that God was willing to offer grace, but that the grace that he was willing to offer must be earned. There had to be something that we could do or we had to do to pay off our debt to God. And in the case of the Judaizers, it was faith plus keeping the Mosaic law that made a person right with God. 
And so you're going to see over the next several weeks, the central message of Galatians is justification by grace through faith. And it's grace alone. We can't add anything to it. When we add anything to, to the free grace, to the work that Christ did on the cross, then we nullify God's grace. Because if we can earn it, it's not freely given. If we can earn it, then Christ didn't need to die for us. Why would God have sacrificed his only son? Why would Christ go through what he went through, not just in living in a human body, but being brutally tortured and crucified, executed the worst way known to man? Why would he go through all that if we could handle it on our own with works? And so Paul is trying to say, look, salvation is not grace plus works. It is grace alone. Now, let me, let me pause here, though, and make this clear. What Paul is not saying is he is not saying that when you're justified through faith, when you receive free grace, that gives you the privilege as a believer to just go on sinning and living life as you please. We covered that mindset last week. And if you're still of that mindset, you might need to go back and, and, and re-listen. So, when we obey God, which we should as believers, it is a result of our salvation. Not a requirement. It's fruit. It, it, it's evidence. When you truly understand the grace of God, when you come to the point of recognizing the weight of your sin, and when you desire forgiveness and right relation with the Father, when you truly understand your incredible depravity and His grace, then you repent. You don't just pray a prayer. You repent and you live life to honor and please him, and that is a very evident result of your salvation, of his work of grace in your life. Galatians chapter 1, we'll read the first 10 verses of chapter 1 together this morning. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I try, trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. So you see the common practice that you'll see in, in all of Paul's letters. It was a common practice for the writer to, to identify themselves at the beginning of the letter. It's different than what we do. We usually sign it. And if you get a letter, you're not sure who it's from. You look to the bottom. No, at the very beginning of the letter, um, the writer identifies himself. And you see that Paul, right up front, is giving his credentials. He is an apostle. Now, an apostle is one who is sent with a commission, but specifically... The apostles, there were two requirements to be an apostle. One was that you witnessed the life and ministry of Christ, including his resurrection and ascension. And then the second was that the Lord himself called you to that office. 
And so Paul has a little bit of a conflict here with these false teachers. They were attacking him because technically um, the, the first requirement, being an eyewitness to the life and ministry of Christ, technically that was not true of Paul. In fact, Paul was not there when Jesus was resurrected and ascended, but Paul for certain was a witness to the resurrection because the resurrected Christ appeared to Paul on that road to Damascus. But more importantly, Paul says, look, I was not commissioned by men, but by Christ. And he starts off with his credentials right up front because the false teachers are attacking him. If they're going to get the Galatians to listen to their message, they have to denigrate Paul. They have to convince him that Paul was not who he claimed to be. He was not an apostle. But Paul says, I'm appointed by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. Paul is saying, he's showing his validity of his calling by referring to that Damascus Road experience where the risen Christ appeared to him. Jesus appeared to Paul personally after his resurrection, just as he did to all of the other apostles and the disciples. And so Paul mentions the resurrection of Jesus, not only for that reason, but he brings it up because it is foundational to our faith. It's foundational to our faith. Jesus died for us, but had he not been resurrected, we would have not known that he had victory over sin and death in the grave, and we would not have known that we too, one day, those who are in him, will be resurrected as well. Paul is saying, listen, we serve a living God. Sin did not take him out. Satan did not take him out. And, and the same God who had the power to raise his son to life certainly has the power. He will empower us to accomplish whatever task he gives us. He's the resurrected Lord. Verse 2, as usual, he mentions there were some who were traveling with him. These were co-laborers in the gospel. They held to the same teaching as Paul. And you see the letter is addressed to the churches all over southern Galatia. There were probably several churches, not just one in each city, probably several in each city. They probably met in homes. And by the way, if you look through the book of Acts, often that's the pattern that you see, that churches started as small groups meeting in homes. That's why we're looking and actively pursuing and seeking the Lord to try to figure out, instead of going and planning another uh, Geyer Springs, a big facility, and trying to draw people there. No, we're trying to look and figure out, if you remember what I shared with you last June, not how to plant Walmarts, but how to plant Dollar Generals, smaller places all over the city. Why? Because they grow faster, because people are less intimidated to come into that kind of setting. And so Paul addresses all of these churches. This letter was probably um, passed around. Verses 3 through 5, uh, it's a bit of a departure from Paul's normal greeting to churches. Usually he's more personal. Usually he kind of shares a word of commendation and some other courtesies, but, but he's very direct and to the point because he wants to get to the concern he has for these churches and their departure from the gospel. You do notice in verse 3 that he offers the traditional blessing that Paul would offer of grace and peace. That's a very usual greeting, but in this case, it's more than his usual greeting. It's also a specific response to the works message of the Judaizers. Paul is reminding these Galatians that salvation is of grace. If salvation is not of grace, then you don't have peace. It's grace and therefore peace. Why does he say that? Well, because if you have to work, if you have to do a certain number of things to be eternally secure, you can never be sure that you've done enough. You can never be sure that you're good enough. I run into people all the time and I ask them, uh, if you were to die today and you know the question, 
Why should God let you in in, in his heaven? And they say, well, because I'm a good person, because I've done good things. Well, how do you know you've done enough good things? How do you know you're a good enough person? What's the measurement for that? Listen, the measurement for us is Christ. If you want to know what kind of person you are, you need to hold yourself up to the person of Christ. And guess what? He was perfect. You're not. I'm not. That's why we need him. That's why we need grace. I've told you before, being in the Middle East, in Oman, and the United Arab Emirates, visiting our kids and our, and, well, visiting our grandkids, and our kids were there too, um, and, and you'd hear five times a day, you'd hear that call to prayer. And I remember having that conversation with my son-in-law, well, Brandon, how, how does that, well, if, you're, uh, if you get up and go to the mosque, you get big points. If you're at work and you go to the prayer room, you get this number of points. If, if you're lazy and you stay home and pray, you still get points, but not as much. Okay, well, who keeps track? Is the imam? No. Who keeps track? Is there some kind of record book? How do you know when you've done enough? You can't know that you've done enough. It's not possible. We receive grace not because of our actions, but because of God's love for us. Grace is the foundation of the gospel, and peace is the result of the gospel. We have peace because of what Christ has done. You show me a strong, committed believer, true follower of Christ, and I can tell you whatever temptations and trials and difficulties come their way, they still have peace because, more importantly than what happens in this life, is the fact that they have been made right with God. That's that's how we have peace. We don't have wrath or or judgment hanging over us. Verse 4, Paul reminds them that Jesus gave himself for our sins. Why? Because we can't avoid sin by our own effort. We don't have the power to avoid sin, and we can't keep the law in our own power. Only Jesus could forgive our sin, and only Jesus can give us uh, the power to overcome sin, and that all was accomplished through his death on the cross. Look what he says. He died for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. Now, evil age is not referring to a a time in history. Evil age is referring to the world's system or the world's order. He came to deliver us from a world system that is ruled by whom? Who rules the world system? Satan does. And he came to deliver us from, from the world system that's ruined by Satan. Listen, if you doubt Satan has controlled the world system. You got your head in the sand. You hadn't been watching the news. You hadn't been paying attention to anything going on in our world because I believe it's more and more evident in our day that Satan rules the world system. How many times have you been in a conversation and heard it said, or how many times have you said, can you believe where we are? Boy, 10 years ago, five years ago, I wouldn't imagine that things would degenerate to the point that they would today. I never imagined it would come to this. Why is that? Because the gloves are off. Satan knows his end, is year, his end is near, and so the world system is going to get crazier and crazier and more and more corrupt. Jesus came to deliver us from that system. Paul goes on here to clarify Jesus' death, look at this, was according to the will of our God and Father. The sacrifice of Jesus was planned long before you and I ever existed. God's plan from the very beginning, the sacrifice of Jesus was God's will. It was planned by God. It was designed by God. And listen, please don't think that Jesus just kind of got stuck with the plan. Jesus was part of the plan. He planned his own sacrifice. Look, look, you don't have time to turn. It'll be on the screens. Look at John 1, 1 through 3. 
In the beginning was the Word. That's Jesus. The Word was with God. The Word was God. Jesus has always existed. He was born in a human body on this earth, but he has always existed. He's been with God from the very beginning. Verse 2, he was in the beginning with God. Now check out verse 3. All things were made through him. Without him was not anything made that was made. What things were made through him? All things. What was made without him? Nothing. He made all things. He planted the tree from which the cross would be formed. He put the iron ore in the ground which would be used to make the spikes that nailed him to that tree. How about this? Jesus planted Judas in his mother's womb and allowed him to be born. He created the men and allowed the religious and political systems to be developed that would lead to his execution. The plan was his. He made us. We are his creation, and he loved us so much, he willingly gave himself. It is right that the creator would willingly give himself for the created. Jesus followed the will of the Father. Jesus obeyed the will of the Father. Paul in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 8 says, He humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. But listen, even though he followed the will of the Father, even though he obeyed the will of the Father, please don't get the idea that, that he was drugged, kicking and screaming into that plan. It was his plan, and he had the choice whether to do and follow or not to do and follow the will of God. Listen to his own words, Jesus' words in John 10, verse 17. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life that I may take it up again. Verse 18. No one, this is Jesus speaking, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. It was the Father's will, but it was also Jesus' will. It was the Father's plan, but Jesus was part of the plan. And Jesus clearly says, listen, don't think my life got taken from me and it wasn't my choice. It was absolutely my choice. I decided to lay my life down for you. Verse 5, he says, this is all to the Father's glory. Why is that? Because God originated the plan. Because God set the plan in motion, because God paid its price, because God brought it to completion, he alone deserves glory. And when you and I really look and fully understand God's incredible plan for us in giving his own son, in the creator being willing to die for the creature, in him drawing us to him in love, while we were still in sin and rebellion, he didn't start drawing us to himself when we decided to be good people and start doing good things. No. Romans 5, 8 says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. At our worst possible state that we could be in, he began drawing us out of our sin and rebellion. He began drawing us in love. And when we really uh, contemplate and, and meditate on the mercy and grace he has offered, our only response could possibly be to praise and glorify God. And one of the ways we do that is with, with our life. 
Well, there's the salutation of the greeting in those first five verses, and, and something is conspicuously absent when you read all of Paul's other letters, there's usually an expression of thanksgiving to God for that particular body, for those readers. But Paul doesn't share that here. He's pressed to get onto the point, and, and he's pretty blown out of the water by what they're doing. Look in verse 6. He's astonished. It's not a good thing. He's shocked. He's disturbed. He's disappointed. What is he astonished about? Well, the Galatians are in the initial stages of defecting from the gospel that they heard from Paul. This is the gospel that they claim to receive, they claim to embrace, that Jesus came and lived and he died and he rose again, that grace was given for us and it was freely given. That was the gospel they claimed to receive in grace, receive and embrace. But look what Paul said, you are quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. He's surprised that so soon they're walking away from the true gospel. And quickly means not only uh, time quickly, but also easily. You're so soon and so quickly walking away. And look at the word he uses, deserting. Deserting is a military term. It doesn't, it doesn't have this effect anymore in our day, typically, but deserting is a military term. And when you desert, it's typically punishable by death. Think about that, because what Paul is saying here is you Galatians are voluntary, voluntarily deserting grace to pursue legalism, and guess what legalism results in? Death. You think you're good enough, you think you can do enough good to earn your way to heaven, you got a big surprise coming because you're going to experience eternal death if you're trusting in yourself and not in Christ. He says, and you're turning to a different gospel. What is a different gospel? It's the gospel of grace and works. The Judaizers have come in behind Paul and added the requirement of keeping the Jewish laws and ceremonies as a requirement for salvation. And so, yes, Paul's deeply disturbed. He can't believe that they're so unstable, that they're not grounded and rooted in their faith. They have not fully understood that the plan of salvation is accomplished by grace alone. He's disturbed because he poured his life into these people, and now they're just walking away from the truth. And let me pause here and say, this is why it is so important that we make sure new believers, and specifically we make sure that, that our children are grounded in the scriptures, grounded in the word of God. We've got to spend the time, and I'm not, I'm not talking about the church, I'm talking to parents right now. You've got to spend the time making sure that they understand the precepts and the principles of scripture, that they understand what the word says, that they're equipped to be able to recognize a lie when they hear it. Listen, how many times do we have to say to the church, I don't even know, Jason, I know you hate it when I call on you in the middle of the message, What's the percentage of high schoolers that walk away from their faith when they go to college? Is it still upwards to 80? Kids who've grown up in the church. Listen, I'm going to tell you the same thing I tell parents when we do parent dedication classes. Not our job. It's not the job of the preschool ministry, the children's ministry, or the student ministry to get your kids grounded in the Word. We're there to come alongside you, but if you're a parent, that's your job. And here's what I always go to when I'm talking to parents. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 through 7. 
The Israelites are about to move into the promised land that God has given them. They've already been given the Ten Commandments. Of course, there are other, the other uh, laws they have to follow as well to honor God. He's warning them because they're about to go into a land filled with pagan, godless people. And he says to that assembly that is gathered there, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. There's only one God. There's only one way to God. There's no other way. It's just one. And he tells them, love with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. And then listen, listen, parents, listen to me. Dads, listen to me. The whole assembly is gathered. These words are spoken to the whole assembly, but I got to believe they're primarily spoken to the dads because they're the head of household, just like today. You may have abdicated your role. That doesn't remove you from the responsibility. He says, these commands that I'm giving you today are to be upon your heart. That's step one. You sure can't teach something that, that, that you don't have, that you haven't grasped, you haven't held on to. These commands are to be upon your heart. You're to build them in your life. And then watch this. Impress them on your children. When you sit in the house, when you walk along the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. So when do you impress the things of God on your children? All day long. When you're home, when you're out, when you're tucking them in at night, when you're getting them up in the morning. It's a constant process. If we're going to make sure that our kids aren't Aren't, aren't part of that 80% that, that walk away. You know, we're sending them into a world that's just like the world the Israelites are moving into, going into the promised land, a world full of pagan peoples and false doctrines and false teachings, ungodly things. We expect them to survive. We've got to understand the importance as parents and grandparents making sure they're grounded. Verse 7. Hot in here. I know you balcony people, it's cold up there, but that's what you get for sitting up there. You know, it's really a misnomer to say that it's a different gospel or another gospel. It's not a gospel. The word, you know, this the word gospel means good news. A gospel of good works is not a gospel at all. It's, it's certainly not good news. We've already discussed that, that there's no good news in works because you'll always wonder, you'll always uh, not, you, you won't be sure, you'll never know. Listen, God intends you to know, to know that you know him, to know that you're saved, to know that you have a relationship, to know that you have home in heaven. 1 John 5, John wrote this, I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life. Works doesn't enable you to know that. Look what he says in verse 7. He says that they're troubled. Why is that? Because if you don't know the truth, you're going to be troubled. False teachers and the false belief systems that they present are going to trouble you. The word trouble in the Greek literally means to shake back and forth. Someone that 
or something that troubles you is going to agitate you or, or stir you up. And if you're not well grounded in the truth, in your faith, you will continue to be troubled by false teachings. You know why? Because you're always going to wonder, well, is that really true? You go after this false teaching and some other false teaching comes along and that sounds good and you pursue that. You'll never know. You're going to be troubled and stirred up and, and shaken continually. It's the same picture that, that James presents in James chapter 1 when he says that the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Constantly tossed back and forth and to and fro, shaken and troubled. How do you keep from being shaken and troubled? Well, a faith that is immune to doubt is a faith that is built on fact and on truth. There's only one source for truth. And any teacher, any spiritual leader that proclaims anything contrary to God's own word is a false teacher. I don't care what church they're a part of. I don't care what denomination they're a part of. I don't care how big a following they have. I don't care how slick a presentation they can give. If they're saying anything contrary to the Word of God, they're a false teacher. And if you follow them and you depart from the truth, your life is going to be shaken and troubled. These false teachers were distorting or they were perverting the gospel. They were turning it into something opposite. The gospel is grace alone. The gospel is grace alone. I want you to say that with me, you in the venue as well. Ready? The gospel is grace alone. One more time. The gospel is grace alone. You can't add works to grace. Works eliminate grace. There is no grace if, it, if it's works. And any gospel that's not of grace alone is the opposite. It is not a true gospel. Look at verses 8 and 9. This is, this is a heavy word for those who are messengers or those who are teachers. This would include pastors, include Bible study leaders, Sunday school teachers. We better be sure we're preaching the true gospel. We're, we're teaching the scripture, the whole counsel of God, and not adding to or, or taking from it. There's a lot of false doctrine. This wasn't just a Galatian problem. There's a lot of false doctrine in our day that's proclaimed as truth. And false teachers abound on the radio and television and, and, and internet. And what does he say about them in verses 8 and 9? He says that they're accursed. Accursed is the translation of the Greek word anathema, and it means they are set aside for destruction. They're going to be severely judged by God, false teachers are. Now, most of you in this room are not in that role, so let me talk, about, talk to you as a, as a student, as the one who hears. You must examine everything you hear. This is what you hold it up to. This is what you hold it up to. It doesn't matter what any teacher, what any professing spiritual leader says. If it doesn't match up to the word of God, you need to especially be careful when someone declares that he or she has some new truth or new insight. There is nothing new. God has given us his complete revelation in this book. 
And here's the thing you got to understand about false doctrine. False doctrine typically is very close to the truth. False doctrine typically is close enough to the truth. It just has a, a minor variation that you may not catch if you don't know this book. I'll give you one example, just one. Let's say you have a friend who's a Mormon. And they invite you to a, a Bible study about Jesus. And you think, well, you know, I'd kind of like to know what they believe. And, and so you attend. And in that Bible study, you're probably going to hear what sounds like some pretty good doctrine. The Mormons will tell you they believe that Jesus is God's only begotten son, that he was born of the Virgin Mary. They will tell you that they believe through the gospel accounts of his life and ministry, they believe that those accounts are true and they're accurate. They will tell you that they believe that Jesus willingly submitted himself to die on the cross. He was a willing sacrifice, substitutionary atonement for our sin. Those are all things they believe. And maybe you go home and you think, you know, I wonder... And so you, you dig a little deeper, because that all sounds like good, solid, biblical doctrine, but there's more behind it. They believe the sacrifice of Jesus was not enough. Human works are also necessary. They don't believe that Jesus is part of the Trinity. He's, he's a separate God, a separate being. He was married, and he is actually a spiritual brother of the devil. It's easy to get pulled into false doctrine and, and false religion for claiming a false gospel. We must know the truth. Charles Spurgeon, many of you would recognize his name. He was a great theologian. Charles Spurgeon once said this, discernment is not knowing the difference between right and wrong. Discernment is knowing the difference between right and almost right. Listen, there's a lot of almost right out there, and it sounds good. And if you don't know the word of God, you're going to be deceived. False teaching is going to point you to a false gospel. So we study Paul's letter to the Galatians. One very clear point of application for believers today is to know the truth, to know God's word, not, not know about God's word, not hear about God's word, but to dig in and to know God's word and to teach God's word diligently to the next generation. That could be your child, that could be your, your, your grandchild, that could be a, a young uh, or, or a friend who's a new believer, a young believer. There's one gospel, there's one God, there is one source of truth. Would you bow with me this morning? Those of you in the venue, would you bow with me as well? We always need to take a moment and think about and, and reflect on what we've heard. I've got some questions for you this morning, just some questions for thought. Do you understand the gospel that you're saved by grace you can't work for it you can't earn it you can't be good enough many of you understand that 
question I would ask you is I have to often ask myself, when was the last time you thanked Jesus for the incredible sacrifice he made willingly for you? Well, if we truly understand the depravity of our sin and, and, and we understand the grace of God, that thanks should be continually flowing from our lips. about that word conversion. What, what followed your prayer? Was there a genuine life change that you came to Christ? Do you know the truth? Do you know the truth well enough to spot a lie? Listen, if you're not digging into the Word of God, not just when you come to worship on Sunday, not just when you go to Bible study, but if you're not daily digging into the Word of God, Satan has this massive bullseye on your heart. He's a deceiver. He's a liar. He wants to lead you astray. You know the truth? Are you, are you committed to searching out the truth? If you're here this morning and you don't have a relationship with Christ, you have heard a very clear gospel message. That Jesus came to live among us, to show us who God is. He died pay for our sin because we couldn't be good enough. We, we couldn't earn salvation. He lived a perfect sinless life, so he was able to die and take your sin and my sin to the cross. But it didn't end there. He rose again. He was victorious over sin and death in the grave. And for those who are in him, he promises that they can have that same victory. Just a moment we're going to come to a time of, of singing a final song of worship. It's a time of response. Let me tell you how you can respond this morning. If you're in the venue, there are pastors in the back of the room. They want to help you with your next step, whatever that is. It may be coming to Christ. It may be saying, I want to be a part of a church that preaches the truth of Scripture. Maybe you just have a prayer need. We want to pray with you. Just a moment as we begin to sing, you'll have the opportunity, if you would like, to get up and just walk to the back of the venue. Here in the worship center, I'll be right down front. Our next steps area is right outside the doors and to your left. There'll be pastors there just to pray with you, give you counsel, whatever you need, whatever the next step is that you need to take. What? As the Spirit of God said to you this morning, how do you need to respond?